Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Edgar Garbalato about his story, A 14-Hour Lesson in Theosophy, which appeared in issue 20 of The Common in a portfolio of writing from the Lusosphere. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Edgar Garbalato is a writer and translator born in Brazil and based in the U.S. for 20 years. His translation of João Gilberto, Gilberto Noll's novel, Lord, won the 2020 Djibouti Prize as Best Brazilian Book Published Abroad and was a finalist for the 2020 Lambda Literary Award in Best Gay Fiction. His translation of Noll's novel, Armada, was published by Two Lines Press in November 2020, and Hugs and Cuddles, another award-winning novel by Noll, is forthcoming from the same publisher in fall 2022. He has received fellowships from the Disquiet International Literary Program in Lisbon and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, among others. He holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Illinois and lives in Chicago, where he is currently editing his debut novel, Terra Incognita, written in both Portuguese and English. Edgar Garbalato, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation and tell us where you're calling from? Yes, I'm calling from Chicago, my home. Um, I am actually sitting in my office slash sunroom. So I'm looking out uh, to the street and to the trees. It's an unusual warm day here in Chicago. We are in the 60s, despite still being winter. Wow. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely weather for a great city that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. We've got a little warm weather here as well in, in New England, and it's so nice. <laughs> it is nice. Yeah. Um, would you start off with a reading from your story, read maybe the first few paragraphs for us? Yeah, of course. Thanks. A 14-hour lesson in theosophy, imagining the last hours of Clarice Lispector. 1.05 a.m., the rain starts. I arrive so close to her. I can breathe the rain mixed with the sore smell of her scalp. 1.13 a.m. Fighting against the slowdown of the pills, C sits in front of the dressing table and hates what she sees. An ancient face with new furrows, an aged reflection of whom she thought she was still was, a worsened version of herself. She can't leave the house tomorrow as she is now, Swollen face, short eyelashes, brittle hair stuck to her scalp. Gray spots mark her pale forehead like stains on the face of a full moon. A reminder of the fire in the apartment that almost extinguished her years before. What she knows is that she needs to look well tomorrow. This will be her final spectacle now that her relative success as a writer exposes her to eyes on the streets. 
After 13 books, she has become the subject of her own fiction, and the public expects her to be the actress of herself. If this small success had arrived 20, 30 years ago, maybe she wouldn't even care about her appearance. Trusting people would hold on to her erstwhile image. But all their recent attention deprived her of the freedom of not being beautiful anymore, right at the moment of fleeing the scene. Maybe I'll stop there. Perfect. Thank you so much for reading that. For our listeners who may not have, have read your story yet, would you just briefly describe what the piece is about, sort of its general premise? Yeah, so the piece is about a um, Brazilian woman, 57 years old, who lives in Rio. She's a writer, and um, she has published 13 books, and she never accomplished commercial success, but she has reached some small fame, especially within the literary circles. But unfortunately, that fame arrived too late. Uh, she's diagnosed with cancer, and um, she knows she has very uh, her time to live is very short. So, of course, the story, as I said in the beginning, is based on the life of a Clarice Lispector, or let's say the last days of Clarice Lispector's life. Um, um, but it's an imagination, right? So this is fiction. It's not biographical. It was never my intention to write her biography because that has been done um, in, in different venues. My, my idea as a fiction writer was to put myself into ahead of someone on, the, on that situation. Again, 57 years old, living in Rio in the 70s, no, in finding herself in a position of uh, relative success, but knowing that all that was uh, came too late, that she was about to die. So there was, um, let's say, the that's if the, if we can call it plot, that would be the plot of the story. But I also think that the piece can be um, understand understood as somebody. A, a writer or a, or a narrator trying to imagine what it would be like to be in the head of someone who uh, that person has read for his entire life. So it's, it's, it's a piece about this woman, yes, but it's also about the, let's say, the collective um, subconsciousness of readers who live through through writers' books. Am I making any sense? <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. No, it, it's it's very meta, isn't it? That's the sort of like you, the writer, but also the reader imagining the writer imagining her readers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and especially for Gladys Lispector, who was somebody uh, who investigated my, the human mind, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to play with uh, with that component. Okay, now it's my turn to be in her mind. Um, of course, with a lot of liberty, right? I'm taking a lot of liberty here, and that's why I say it's not biographical. I know I I cannot I could not guess what was in her mind, but I could mm -hmm. imagine based on the life that she lived and the things that she wrote. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I love the idea. You know, I think. As, as readers, we it, it's so, you know, when you read something that's really compelling to you, especially if you read many works by the same author, like you just want to commune with them and, and you know, either they're out of reach or in this case, they, they've already passed away. And it's, I, I love that you found a way to sort of commune with her in writing. I think that's great. Uh, so as an editor, it is always super exciting to see a piece like this in the submission queue because it's trying to do something unusual, which I think in this case is, is sort of both in terms of form and structure, because it's structured around the, these timestamps and these hours that, that we're passing. And then also in terms of topic, because you're imagining the inner life of a, a real person. And I think, you know, whenever you do something unusual, it's risky in a way in that, you know, writing choices like that can either pay off big or they can just turn the reader off or, or something like that. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the process of writing this and like choices that you made? And, and did you ever worry or have concerns that people would not be open to this style or this topic? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I th start, start answering your question from the last part. I, <laughs> when I'm writing or jotting down the ideas, I'm not worried about what people are going to think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that comes later uh, okay. when I'm editing and discussing with with other people in as I discussed with you <laughs> and um, but uh, okay I think um, giving a little bit of background how this story came to be um, I started jotting down ideas uh, every time I was reading Clarice Lispector or, or reading um, some biographical component of her life and even watching her achieved success here in the West in the past 10 years, um, which was something that I never expected. <laughs> so um, throughout this, let's say, past 10 years, watching that, observing that, and also, um, again, yeah, being inspired by her own reading and by her own, by her own life, I was jotting down ideas and writing different impressions of, um, again, this, this imagining of being inside her head, um, considering everything that was going on in her life at that point. So that was how the story came about. Um, so it was not really a story to begin with. It was very much like a, a jotting down of ideas. And eventually, when I started to see something more tangible that could be published, I decided then to create a more, let's say, uh, narrative um, guide, something that had a kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still, when I think, when I submitted to the common, it was still in a rough form. And you actually, Emily, was the one who, first of all, it was great that you could see the potential in the piece, but you gave, you kind of gave me some ideas on how to give that shape of a, a narrative arc. So, um, yeah, the style has pretty much been always the same, this kind of a, a philosophical, sensorial way of looking at life and death and the city that she's in. Um the style was always there. The structure changed a lot based on feedback and mostly from you, <laughs> feedback from you. So, again, it was great to see that uh, you could relate to the piece. And then that's, I think, that's the best thing that a writer can ask for is when he sees, okay, this resonated with someone. It can resonate with other people. Let me work on this a little more. I'm uh, so thrilled to hear that. That's so great to hear. Um, it was so long ago that we worked on the piece. In my memory, it was just perfect the minute it arrived. But, but I suppose you're right that we did, that we did do some revisions on it. Um, I also am lucky in that we have a team of, of readers and interns who read things and they give me their notes and I think about which of their notes resonate with me and stuff. So it's it's never never just me. But um, it's, it's really interesting to hear that. Um, because I think you're right that it is, it's a very philosophical piece. And, you know, she's mainly, she's remembering things and having inner thoughts and trying to put together things that have meaning for her. Um, and not a lot of, you know, quote unquote action or, or plot or anything like that. Um, and I think, you know, well, probably people are sick of editors talking to them about story arc all the time. But um, I think that I, I, I'm pretty sure that all we did was sort of rearrange things a little bit to make sure that, that it felt like there was an arc because... I think with a piece like this, you know, there would be no point in me as an editor going in and saying it needs more plot, it needs more action. Like that's not what the piece is trying to do. And so I think, you know, as editors, we always try to like meet the piece with where it is and what it's trying to do. And, you know, either that resonates with you or it doesn't. And if it does, then you have to, you know, just sort of look at what small adjustments can be made rather than wishing it was a different style altogether or something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, um, I'm a writer who drives mainly, um, Let's say when I write, I'm character-driven. I'm not so concerned with plot, um, but I'm very concerned about investigating a character's mind, and that's what I was doing with this piece. I was not really concerned about plot. And if you think, you know, if you ask me what is the plot of the story, well, it's, it's a woman taking a taxi to go to the hospice because she has cancer that's the plot but uh, so that's not really my concern let's say my concern is 
going deeper, but there's also very, com uh, in the character's mind, but also there's a very sensorial component in this piece that I really like too, and I think uh, that's important, especially considering that it's Rio de Janeiro, uh, and you have all that visual appeal happening uh, the, uh, outside the character's inner world. So it's a, it's, a, it's a piece also about the communication between the inner world and the outer outer world. Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect because I was going to ask you about how you constructed Rio in this story because I think it's so vivid and alive. We sort of see it on a street level and it's kind of dirty or crowded. Or there's traffic and there's people and, all, and you know, Clarice has all these, uh, you know, layers of memory of being around the city with her children and stuff like that. Um, and then we also get sort of a zoomed out view that shows us like the high rise buildings, but also the slums and the ocean and the smell of the ocean and and that kind of thing. Would you talk a little bit about just capturing Rio and all those different ways that she experiences it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, Rio was a very part, a very important part of Clarice's life. Uh, she had lived abroad and um, for 20 years, um, but she always said that Rio was her place. And um, and you see that in her, all her work. A lot of uh, her stories happen in Rio. Um, and then I guess because I was also in a similar situation of living abroad for 20 years now, uh, my relationship with Rio changed. Uh, when I was living in Brazil, I guess I didn't pay much attention mm -hmm. to the city or what it represented. But then uh, living in the United States made me makes me think about Brazil and Rio in particular in a more different way. So I kind of uh, also have this aerial view of the city, like many people do. When people imagine Rio, they have this uh, aerial photograph, right, of the mountains and the city and the ocean. Um, and um, I think when you talk about Rio, uh, you kind of need that those two perspectives, the aerial and also at the ground level. Uh, aerial because it's simply a beautiful view. I mean, it's the, the, the backdrop is amazing with mountains and rocks and forests and cities. And then when you are down there on the, <laughs> the ground level, you experience the city in a different way, very busy and chaotic and uh, the presence of the, mo the ocean in all senses. On, on the smell and uh, the quality of the air, everything is impacted so strongly by by the Atlantic Ocean. So it was, yes, my impression of Rio, but again, trying to see through this character's eyes and try to feel the city through her in a moment when she's departing life, which then... Um, unfolds a whole different set of uh, of uh, emotions and feelings, right? So I again trying to imagine what is uh, someone's farewell to the external world. This external world being Rio de Janeiro, uh, a big city with all these components that I just described. Um, yeah, so I, it is. When I was explaining at the beginning, it is a story about this woman, but it's also a story about Rio and the way the city can be uh, experienced. Yeah, that's what makes it such a great fit for the common. You know, we publish work with a, with a strong sense of place. And I think, um, you know, for such an interior piece, there is a very strong place in, in, in your story. Absolutely. Now, I know from talking with you when we were working on revisions that uh, this story has been through a lot of changes and revisions, um, even before I looked at it. Um, I know you've workshopped it and then you and I made some changes. Um, and I was thinking about, I think that we, uh, I don't remember what comment it was based on, but we added back a section that I think you had taken out earlier, which included a television interview mm -hmm. that Clarice uh, gave in the last weeks of her life. And Ben, I have, I have since watched parts of this interview on, I think it's on YouTube and I mean, you, you, you evoke it so vividly and it's, and it's, you know, it's a hard watch and it's, it's a. A difficult section of the piece, but I think it's so powerful in the, in the story and really gives us a lot of uh, clarity on what Clarice has been struggling with. 
Um, would you talk more about the revision process, anything you feel like is, is worth mentioning, and also just anything about that, that scene in particular and sort of the process it went through? Yeah, sure. As I said before, I was, you know, the story started, the piece started with uh, me jotting ideas throughout the years. So it didn't really have a shape in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But at some point, um, I think when I was in my MFA that I felt like, okay, maybe I want to workshop this piece. And then I started giving some kind of a shape to it. Uh, and then the first version was not actually um, 14 hours, but it was something like the last days uh, of mm -hmm. her life. So the timeline was uh, different. Uh, the structure was different. And there was also room for me to develop uh, some side characters like her, her sons. Yeah, there was a son mm -hmm. that was coming to visit her in the hospital. So there was also like a scene, scenes with her in her apartment and then in the, ca in the taxi and then in her in the hospice so yeah the timeline was different the structure was different and uh it was longer um to be honest with you i don't know <laughs> at which point i decided that it would be maybe more impressionist and more impactful mm -hmm. if i compressed the timeline in hours uh, so it would be a piece that covered just a few hours. And I focused in the, yeah, so the, the, the what was happening, the setting would be her in the cab going to the hospice. And throughout that ride, because the ride is delayed uh, for because of traffic and all that, throughout that uh, ride, she then, again, uh, you know, saying goodbye to the city, saying goodbye to her life, um, and the city stimulating her to have some thoughts, then she would go back and think about some moments of her life, but anything kind of in a rush, because her life was rushing, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the story took a different shape, and I decided to compress it in, 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 a, in a few hours, and then I think I settled on that. So when I sent it to the common, was already on that shape. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and as far as the TV scene, yeah, it, it was not there before. It was on the original version, and then I removed it. But then um, I realized that uh, I think you asked me for some a little more background, and I realized that that scene provided the background that was needed. Um, it was it was based again on the real interview that she gave on TV, and if you watch it, it's really it's really um, something because mm -hmm. you can she's definitely irritated, annoyed, not interested in the questions. She says during the interview she's in a very bad mood and very sad, and um, which only adds to. Um, the mythical, you know, <laughs> the mythology around her. Because imagine mm -hmm. today if a writer is being interviewed on TV and he says, oh, I'm not in the mood today or I'm tired, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I think nobody would yeah. do that, right? We would say, yeah. oh, well, great, I have an opportunity for an interview. <laughs> she didn't care. She was, she lived in another, in another domain. She didn't care about, I think, the feeling, again, me imagining the feeling was that mm -hmm. everything came so late and um that at that point she was really disappointed with the way life turned out to be where even a tv interview came in her last 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 moment i mean that interview was giving i believe a couple of weeks before she actually died and um so the fact that she was tired, it was not just, you know, it was not, uh, it was it was for real. She was tired because she was dying. Hmm. And, um, yeah, those kind of things really, that irony, let's say, was also something that drew, drove me throughout this piece. Um, and somehow connects also to one of her novels, uh, The Hour of the Star, where... 
that irony of life is right there. So the main character, Maccabea, it's uh, it's um, it's uh, at the end of the that novel, she goes to a fortune teller, and the fortune teller says, "You're gonna have a wonderful life." Well, just some background: the character is a poor woman from Northeast Brazil living in Rio, and the fortune teller tells her, "You're gonna have a great life. You're actually gonna meet a tall blonde foreigner." Um, and stuff like that. And when Maccabea leaves the fortune teller, she's hit by a Mercedes, driven by a tall, <laughs> blonde foreigner, and then she dies right there on the spot. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that irony there mm. uh, of... Uh, I, I transpose to the story, because at some point in my story, Clarice also goes to a fortune teller who tells her, all those wonderful things. Right. 57 is your year. You're going to be successful. You're going to achieve all this. You're going to transform yourself. And um, so all, all the, she was getting all these signs that life was going to be amazing from now on. But then, irony, she, um, she actually got sick. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think I'm responding to your answer, uh, answering your yeah. question with your a lot of uh, deviations here. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off no no i mean you're thinking about all the things i'm thinking about because uh, you know it, it, i think it's tricky because like you know you're a writer i'm a writer and they're like um part of that life is imagining success for yourself and imagining people reading your work and responding to it and liking it a lot and maybe a lot of people reading it and so there, i think there's like an almost an element of horror in the idea of like having that but it coming too late. And I mean, like who wouldn't be disappointed? Who wouldn't be a little like bitter in an interview when you finally get your big, your, you know, your big fame or your big success and, and you're sort of over it by that point, you know, that's. It's important to point out that she was never really famous, right? So we, we talk, right. we're talking about small fame here. Mm-hmm. She was famous and recognized within the literary circles but she was never a popular writer. And that's why I said before that I was surprised myself when I saw her success in the West. I never thought that that would happen because my relationship with her writing was very personal. You know, it was like I was taking, it's almost like you find something so special and then you keep it to yourself. You don't even mm-hmm. talk about it with other right. people. And then suddenly all this happened. And again, another irony of, um, of her legacy is that all this is happening 40 years after she died. Yeah. Um, so that sense of irony of life was definitely in my mind when I was writing this. Yeah. I also really feel like um, I maybe, I, I agree with you that like the last 10 years, like the last few years have, you know, just this rise in recognition for her work. And so, you know, reading your piece is almost like another irony where I feel like I read it around the same time that I was really just starting to, to see her name everywhere, you know, to see her on these lists and things. Um, so, the, you know, the, the Common publishes a lot of work in translation. And, and so I've talked with quite a few translators on the podcast. But I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about being a translator and a fiction writer, both. Like, are there aspects of one that influences the other? Are there skills from one that help you do the other thing better? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I... Well, as you know, English is my second language. So uh, for me uh, to be translating into English or even writing my own 
material in English. Um, the two things are very interrelated because I am a writer that works at the sentence level. I look at each sentence as a world in itself. And uh, when you do that, and you definitely uh, do that in translation, right? So translation, you take one sentence in, in the original and you work on the sentence. What is the best version of the sentence on the target language? Um, and again, for me, because I'm approaching the target language, English, from uh, a non-native perspective, that work is um, d different, I'm assuming, than a native English speaker and translator or writer, because um, maybe the sentence is not loaded with meaning, like it might be for you, for example. Mm -hmm. But it makes me analyze the, the sentence in a different light. And um, yeah, almost kind of a trying to strip the sentence to the bone if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I think, for example, when I write in Portuguese, my native language, I I try, uh, not that I try, but I, I can get caught in in the alleg allegories of language and get me get carried away. And when I, th when I am writing in English, I, I really try to strip the language to the bone, like uh, remove the excesses um, especially Portuguese is a language that allows so much uh, playfulness. It's not that the e English doesn't do, but um, in my mind, English is a more straightforward, objective, uh, structured uh, syntax. Uh, that's not... That's not so much the case with Portuguese. So I guess answering your question, um, the translator, especially because I've translated an author that is very challenging uh, when it comes to syntax, um, the translator made me definitely a better writer at the sentence level and uh, made me think about all the moves that I make in my own writing. That's really interesting. I think you're totally right. <laughs> Me, who doesn't speak any other languages very well. Um, I do think you're right that English is is sort of a, I don't know, there's something about it that's a little stiff, especially when I think about all the uh, rules for constructing a sentence in English and what can go where and that kind of thing. And and certainly other translators on the show, on the podcast, uh, translating from, from Arabic have mentioned the same thing, which is that um, other languages can have a little more space for sort of, yeah, flourish or um, figurative language, I guess I would say. Yeah. Um, that's great. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the challenges of translating fiction from Portuguese into English specifically? Like, are there, are there certain things you have to look out for? Yeah, I think it has to do with what we were saying before. I think mm -hmm. Portuguese, it's a much more, I don't want to say flourished, but I think more, well, first of all, it's a very, it's a very uh, old language, and even the Brazilian Portuguese is very different than the uh, Portuguese from Portugal. Mm -hmm. And in Brazil, we have incorporated a lot of um, uh, indigenous expressions and uh, expressions from uh, African Brazilian descendants. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the Portuguese, the Brazilian Portuguese, is much more uh impure than the portuguese from portugal and then um yeah and all that playfulness of portuguese can be challenging sometimes transposing to english um especially the author that i translate mostly uh João gilberto now um he he he's similar to Claudius Lispector in the way of uh, of being very playful with the language and defying uh, also the rules the, of grammar and syntax in Portuguese. So that's a challenge in itself because besides the language being uh, challenging to transpose into English, you also have these particular particularities of this uh, particular author. Um, that makes it even more challenging. And in the case of Nal, he's from the southern region of Brazil, the same region that I am from. 
and he uses a lot of regional expressions that people, for example, in Sao Paulo, Rio, would not understand or would need some kind of a regional dictionary. Um, for me, the connection with his particular Portuguese was very strong because I could relate to that regional level. And there were words that my mom used to uh, uh, use, for example, that I don't use, but I, I could relate to that. Hmm. So the Portuguese, uh, the Brazilian Portuguese is very rich and with very layer very layers of complexity based on your background in the region you born or uh, grow up. Um, it is challenging, but it's it's fascinating. I'm very fascinated by this idea of uh, transposing a language into another one, and especially the English language, which is, I guess, I have some <laughs> knowledge. Um, so it's very interesting. Uh, that's what drove me to translation to begin with, that, mm-hmm. um, oh, my God, I can take this masterpiece and work at the word level, sentence level, and transform it into another language. That That is fascinating for me. Yeah, I, I think that is so interesting. I love the idea of that, like the richness and the different layers of, of Brazilian Portuguese. I haven't, I haven't heard anyone say that before, but uh, it makes makes perfect sense. Um, and I think, I do think that the most fun part of translating to me seems like that just working at the sentence level, like for once you don't have to worry about plot and arc and structure and all these other things, because those things are, are done for you already. You can just, you know, play with the language, which is, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the best part of writing. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to worry about that, but you still have to, uh, understand it. Right. Oh, for sure. Um, in the case of Nall and Gladys Inspector, they work with some so much abstractions okay. uh, you also have to do that work of interpreting what do they really mean by saying that or what are, are there many interpretations for this sentence or for what is trying to be conveyed here so all the work that you do as a writer when you are writing your own piece that mystery of language uh, that decodification that you have to do still there as as a translator or or a writer for sure yeah you'd absolutely you'd have to like understand it i also would think you know in so much writing there's so much subtext and i think it comes from like word choice and language choice and exactly yeah and like that subtext also comes from yeah your general understanding of what the book is about or trying to say yeah uh so i know that english isn't is, is not your first language um so i'm wondering how do you approach writing and translating in your your second language yeah, um, I made this this choice of translating into English because um, uh, because I live in the U.S. for twenty years and my reality is here and I am immersed in this language and culture twenty four hours a day. Right. Um, I think in English, I dream in English, I write in English all day. Uh, for me, it came natural, um, and I was not interested in translating literature. English or American literature into Portuguese that's being done to exhaustion. Uh, unfortunately, well, let's, it's not unfortunate, but it's just, it's just a fact that, you know, um, I guess 50% of what is published in Brazil is translation. That's no. not the reality here. It's the opposite, no, right? No. So only yeah. 3% of what is published is translation. So I was interested, um, so from, uh, let's say from... Um, project perspective, I was interested in promoting Brazilian literature in the U.S. um, first. And then second, for the reason that I just gave in terms of being immersed here, it felt natural to me. Of course, um, it's not my native language, so there are some limitations, and uh, for that, I need good editors such as yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I... One thing that I have learned for sure in the last uh, few years writing in English is that the importance of an editor, uh, somebody who has a different pair of eyes and somebody who uh, can yeah can see the bigger picture. And I have had the luck to be working with great uh, publishers, um, editors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Two Lines Press, the publisher that pub- uh, publishes João Gilberto now, C.G. Evans, is, it's a great editor and he... He knows exactly what I'm trying to say, and then he suggests a better 
rendition. Um, yeah, so um, you just have to surround yourself with good friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when you're writing in your second language, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I I know a lot of translation work can be really, you know, like you said, it's very it's like solo work. You're mostly doing it by yourself. But um, yeah, that moment where you can get some fresh eyes in it and have someone, you know, help you get the word choice right or, or get the angle right is is you know, essential. Yeah. I'm constantly asking friends, how do you say this? And what's the best word to say that? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think, I think that also those of us writing in, in English as our first language also ask our, our friends that question. And I think, yeah, you know, language is endless and, and we will all be working forever to get it right and to get those feelings and nuances right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, the, when you know a language, you can know in many different levels, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so this is my level of English, let's say. And also, the same way that I speak with an accent, I don't mind that my writing has some kind of accent uh, because this is it. I mean, um, yeah. English has become this global language or lingua franca. So what is, uh, who can really say, okay, this is perfect English or the proper English uh, when you have so many uh, different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds appropriating from this language. So it has become, a, you know, a language for everyone to use and, um, I'm using it the best way I can. Yeah, no, but I love that. And I love that, you know, you're not necessarily trying to use it exactly the way people might think you should be, you know, like, I think there's an element of style in, in yeah, and retaining the parts of, of, you know, your original language that you, that you want to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so you talked about uh, the two novels uh, you translated by Joao Gilberto Noll for Two Lines Press. We love Two Lines Press. Um, and I know you're working on a third one now. Um, what is it about his work that appeals to you specifically? It's interesting because my piece, uh, the piece we were discussing earlier, uh, it's about Clarice Lispector. And I would say Clarice Lispector and Jean Gilberto Noll are probably my two favorite writers, at least when it comes to Portuguese literature. Um, and in my mind, when I, let's say, yeah, like 10 years ago, when I started thinking about translating into English, those are the two authors that came to my mind, always. Mm -hmm. Just because I, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by their work. Um, but then, yeah, so the, uh, then the, the, the works by Gladys Lispector started getting translated uh, and published the US and I was like okay that was not an option anymore and then I went to my second, <laughs> my second no it was not second but like the, the other option right. I had and um, yeah so I I was doing my MFA in creative writing and I was taking classes in literary translation and um, a project for one class became um, a book proposal that went to Two Lines Press, and the, the rest is history, let's say. They really liked it, and they are publishing, yeah, my third translation. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm very ha uh, happy to see Noel's work getting published in the U.S. It's uh, something that uh, talks to me in a very personal level, and then to be able to offer that to a wider audience it's really, it's really rewarding. It's, re it's really something. And right now, I'm actually translating um, a novel that um, um, an excerpt is coming up on a on a anthology by Twice Press called Calico. Uh, it's a great anthology published twice a year a very global approach and scope um, so you're getting an excerpt there and it's coming out in the fall and then the full book length is coming out uh, next fall in 2022 and it's called Hugs and Cuddles and is um, my favorite Noel's book the most challenging as well uh, grammatically syntactically and wow. um, even them thematically um yeah, so that's the project that I'm working on now, and uh, that's that should take uh, 
take my time for the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, we'll definitely link to to those books in the podcast notes because they just they sound fascinating. Um, and I'm wondering, just a little follow up question: Do, When you talked about about the syntax that Noel uses being kind of complex or, or unusual, do you like so when you're translating, are you trying to convey that oddity or like unusual syntax to English readers, or is that kind of untranslatable? No, I try. I try. I try some. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say some adaptation to American English, American English more in, in particular, right? Because it's not, I'm not trying a British or Australian English. Um, what sounds right in American English within an America culture context? Um, but I do also preserve some of the foreignness um, because I think, um, first of all, the readership of translation is so small in the country. And I think somebody reading a work like Knowles understands that this is a translation mm-hmm. and expects some kind of a, uh, weird, <laughs> something weird anyway. Um, how many times we hear that about Clarice Lispector, that syntax is weird and strange and all those words. So I'm not, I'm not uh, concerned about if it sounds weird, but I do try my best to transpose into an American... Let's say, I try to make it not easier to an American audience, but um, try to make it more... Um, digestible or more, uh, I guess easier. Yeah. Easier could be the word. Mm -hmm. Like it it needs to be accessible, but it doesn't necessarily need to be like easy and and breezy. Yeah. Accessible is the word that I was looking for. So not easy, but more accessible. Yeah. 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 I know that's always a sort of a balancing act as a translator. So Somehow, between all of this translating you've been doing, you have also found time to complete a novel, <laughs> and it's in both Portuguese and English. Would you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's a novel um, that I started doing my MFA um, program, and um, yeah, it's a novel. It's a historical novel that it happens in Brazil. Uh, it's about Italian immigrants arriving in Brazil a hundred years ago. It's uh, loosely based on the story of my own family. Um, as you can see from my last name, is Italian, and uh, mm. there were a lot of Italian um, immigration in southern Brazil. So it's loosely based on that. Um, but again, um, I was interested more in how those people saw the world. Uh, then uh, it's much more driven by characters' uh, uh, impression of this new world, right? Uh, if you think of Brazil of a hundred south of Brazil a hundred years ago, we are talking about forests and mountains and and rivers and a very wild world. So um, that's how us that's what guided me through this novel. And um, I started writing in English because of my MFA program, and then at some point, uh, because it was such a Brazilian story too, I decided to experiment with Portuguese, which I had abandoned for a while. I was now writing Portuguese for for a long time, and I decided to do that switch. Then I found all sets of uh, challenges. I didn't realize how my mind was so uh, entrenched in the English language. Uh, so for me, writing that novel was also a way to recover my own, uh, my own native language and my own roots. Um, yeah. So at the end of the day, I finished that novel in Portuguese, and now I am uh, translating myself, let's say, uh, <laughs> into English. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an interesting process. It started in English, I finished in Portuguese, and now I want to continue the re- English version. That is so interesting. Yeah, when I, when I saw that it was in both Portuguese and English, I was like, I have questions about what that means. <laughs> I didn't know if it was sort of a combination of both or if it was you yeah, had done the, both models. What is challenging is that uh, when you translate somebody else, you cannot change the original, right? Mm-hmm. But when I'm translating myself, I start oh, making man. these changes. <laughs> so it can become daunting. Like For sometimes, sure. yeah, there's no end in sight because you just keep uh, changing. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel that a lot right now. I'm, I'm revising a novel and it seems like you could just do it for years and it still never be done. <laughs> yes. That's the, the feeling I'm having right now. <laughs> uh, so always the last question we ask podcast guests is, is what you're working on now, what we should look for next. Um, do you feel like we've already covered that or is, is there anything else you'd like to mention? No, right now I'm, um, I started translating Hugs and Cuddles and that project is going to last uh, my entire year. Wow. Uh, it's going to take my entire year. Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex, difficult novel. And that kind of explains why also my own writing gets a little pushed aside, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I just could not uh, refuse the invitation of translating another novel, a known novel. Uh, I just I cannot say no. Of <laughs> so then I, th I say, okay, I'll put this my own project on the side for now and... Mm -hmm. uh, and just being grateful for the opportunity to translate now. That's great. You know, I'm thinking about how how great it is that, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how this this short story is a, way, is a way to kind of commune with Clarice Lispector. And and I feel like in, in translating Noel as well, you, like you've basically been able to, through writing, commune with, you know, your two favorite writers. That is just, that's magic. I'm so happy that you were able to do that. Yes. Um, it's really fascinating because uh, as a writer, you know how um, that's all we want, right? Create that yeah. connection with our idols and, and hopeful, hopefully our readers are going to connect with us at that level too. And with Clarice and Noel, my relationship with them is so, it's so personal, but at the same time, it's also a uh, is shared by so many readers, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like every reader has that personal relationship with those authors. And I just, again, have the privilege to then be able to be really, really, really close to their minds. Um, yeah, it's yeah, great. I mean, that sounds like the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Garbolato, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you. Thank you, Emily, for having me. And uh, good luck for all this year. <laughs> Thank you. We need it. Listeners, you can read Edgar's story, A 14-Hour Lesson in Theosophy, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.